The 2017 archery season approached in a state of tremendous confidence and optimism. I'd begun a respectable training regimen in July that consisted of trail running with weights three days a week. For the first time in nine years, my longtime hunting buddy Adam from Oregon was again going to ante up to hunt with me in Idaho. Another first since 2004, I'd finally upgraded to a bow with current technology, and we were setting our sights on an entirely new area that appeared to have great potential. Most importantly, as a new father, my wife Allie had secured a full week off work to allow a nine-day venture in the backcountry. And finally, my great friend Ian from the 2014 and 2015 rut reports cleared his week and the three of us planned a luxurious RV base camp to shoulder both sides of a wilderness spike camp elk hunt. The table was set for epic results. My season was officially underway the second week of September when I was able to sneak out for a preliminary solo outing. This would be my first opportunity to see these new areas in person and get a real sense if they'd hunt as well as they seemed they would from the computer screen. I strapped on my pack and put my body through a hardcore preseason scrimmage, covering over 20 miles and gobs of elevation, getting a sense of the country. I was not disappointed. Although the season was open, my objective was to explore as many drainages as possible and gain understanding of where Ian, Adam, and I should invest our week-long hunt later that season. I put myself in way too deep in the backcountry to effectively hunt, as the mid-80-degree temperatures thick wildfire smoke, and limited schedule would make it logistically impossible for me to recover any harvest. I carried my bow anyways, and as luck would have it, found myself among countless critters in the forest rubbed raw by decades of rutting elk. I saw big bulls, little bulls, single elk, and herds over 60. Bulls bugled and cows sang, but I kept my calls stowed in pocket and arrows in quiver more than content to simply savor all the potential that laid in store. The days leading up to our hunt were a struggle to get through. My productivity at everything suffered. This new place, its expansive roadless areas, and a wide array of occupied elk habitat gave my imagination license to run wild. More than ever before, I allowed myself to hope for and barely even expect daydream-like encounters with mature rutting bulls. I let myself go, head over heels in love with what I envisioned the season would deliver. There's always a caveat though, right? Always. And in this case, it was the weather forecast. I can't count many of the 17 seasons I've hunted in Idaho that didn't include snow. Typically camped at elevations over 8,000 feet, Adam and I had been especially hard hit and nearly stranded on several occasions. So just like that, as we rolled into our chosen base camp, the wind blew shower after shower up the canyon, each colder than the last. And by our first night at Spike Camp, it was flat out cold and nasty. Elk in the zone were thick. After packing a few miles in, we set up our camps and had a few minutes left before sunset. A 10 minute jaunt up the steep canyon wall revealed a panoramic vantage into the adjacent canyon. A lazy herd of elk was scattered among the sage on the far side, with a very respectable herd bull wandering the wind in tow. As I collected Tabasco-colored fur and pine needles to make camps fire that first night, I could hardly contain my anticipation for morning. 
Each of us whacked the snow and ice from our tents as we finally unzipped them and climbed inside. And the sound of snow sliding off frozen tent materials became common and non-startling during the middle of each night we were there. The weather was still rough with a steady wind from the south on our first day hunting this new gym. A mix of rain and snow blew in sideways with the passing squalls. I had an epic day. Perhaps arguably even the best day in the field as an archery hunter that I'd ever had. I found myself in full draw scenarios with six bulls that day. One of which was a decent 6x6 I'd snuck up on in its bed from nearly two miles away. But the drastic change in weather from wildfire-choked Indian summer days to lashes of driving winter over the following presented fewer and fewer elk for us to pursue. A few days and incredibly close encounters later, we were out of time and had to head home. I bit my tongue emotionally and kept the dogs of frustration and defeat at bay as we headed back to Boise. I wasn't sure if there would be any chance Allie could pull off arrangements to work from home and watch our five-month-old son, Ashton. But there was less than a week left in the season, yet this nagging confidence still hung over me. Allie gets it. She knows how important hunting is to me and how we cherish the freezer full of incredible steaks. The last few years, I've been incredibly fortunate to harvest deer and elk. We'd become accustomed to the luxury of choice, prime, organic goodness. I handled the entire process from field to freezer, and the steps involved were just beginning to feel like a seasonal habit for us. We'd already run down to the final few packs of elk steak in the freezer, and were becoming a bit stingy on how we'd ration the last few. Yet I wasn't worried. In fact, I even let a few days pass without so much as mentioning the last ditch hunt when Ali asked if I'd try to make it out one more time. I barged through the open door and set plans for a solo hunt the final two days. The weather had returned to a seasonal normal now, and when I reached base camp, the snow line now only clipped the upper reaches of the horizon. The ground had clearly been muddied and oversaturated during recent days, but was now just drying out during the midday sun and expansive overnight freezing. My steps felt and looked as though I was walking on day-old brownies. Conifers on the south-facing slopes smelled amazing, and the fragrance of mountain mahogany was intoxicating, like honey and melting vanilla ice cream in the calm, warm mountain air. I had two days to get it done. An hour into my first morning, I was already engaged in a delicate dance, negotiating shifting winds, topography of earth, and line of sight with elk. Just getting into the particular timbered patch I wanted to explore required careful tactical planning to avoid spooking elk in the process. Once on location where my imagination had been playing out elk calling encounters like repeating movie trailers, I began a deliberate and focused campaign of calling my way through the panel of mixed conifer timber. Week-old snow blanketed most of the ground. It was a tad crusty on top, but moaned the broadcast of the compression of each footstep. So it was plain that calling would be a necessary component. Once I sent the sounds of elk into the air, then my noisy footsteps would not be so out of place. Elk make noise when they walk too. A mainstay of my typical calling sequence is actually the simple sounds of breaking branches and simulating a group of elk just doing their thing. Sure, I'll call too, if and when it feels right. But often, I'll feel things out first, by rubbing trees with a branch, thumping logs on the ground, even tossing and rolling small rocks down a hill. 
Just the sound as though whatever is in the area is as casual and non-threatening as possible. I've always said, elk don't panic at the sound of something noisy and clumsy approaching. Those sounds don't raise alarm. However, the most terrifying sound an elk can hear is a sudden twig snapping at 30 yards. It didn't take long to get a bite, and soon I had eyes on a 5x5 bull. Reluctant to leave his cows, we began a game of hide-and-seek. I would call, and he'd venture my direction looking for the elk I was representing. Then he'd retreat back to catch up with his small herd. I'd advance and call again, becoming a persistent distraction he could not resist. Eventually, this volley brought him into reach of my arrow. But as he stepped behind an obstruction of white bark pine, I drew my bow, and the wind shifted on cue and sent a steady stream of mortal danger to the bull. He whirled away and never looked back. I groaned in frustration, but with a sense of relief too, because as this bull and I were trading insults and invitations, another dialogue had begun between a second bull, who sounded much, much larger. Shifting my attention to this second, larger-sounding bull, I blatantly ran in his direction, cutting the perceived distance in half and making my move obvious to the bull. I selected a large dead tree with many baseball bat-sized branches protruding from the dead, bark-covered trunk. I broke a few off and selected one to scrape up and down, knocking and clunking among the other branches. Then I sent a confident chuckle off my right shoulder, directing the sound behind and upwind from my actual location. Shortly after, I could hear the sound of steps trotting through the snow, and the frame of a spectacular, non-typical rack pushed its way through the Christmas-sized trees. He was looking and heading not straight at me, but rather honing in on the false location I directed my calls. He was in range and nearly into a clear shooting lane when I came to full draw and awaited the shot opportunity. But just as before, the incredible elk intuition and magical ability to seemingly shift wind at their discretion foiled this encounter too. I was sincerely disgruntled as he crashed away and rejoined his harem of cows. The sound of his bugle tapered in the distance as he and the group crested consecutive ridgelines up the canyon. Yet once again, I was able to quickly shrug off the defeat as excitement over exploring this brand new country took over. That, and the fact that I'd already plotted an afternoon hunt back to the truck. Out of the corner of my eye, while climbing the ridge that morning, I'd watched a lone, mature 6x6 bull bugle his way into a sliver of timber and not emerge. Come 4 o'clock or so, I knew he'd get out of bed and resume his saga along the yawning cornice I was now gazing into. I'd take the high end of the canyon from here and saddle over just as the bull's path crossed a large open slope. If I could be waiting from the edge of that opening in time, I'd be able to set up and ambush him along the well-worn trail. I put my head down and revved up the engine. Two hours later, I'd achieved a new salt-sweat high mark on my hat, and the air at 9,000 feet made me really feel it, displacing only a sparse presence of pressure in my lungs. And with no time to spare, before I even crested the strategic saddle, I could hear the big dude tossing gravelly chuckles into the sweet mountain air. I topped out and scanned the opening fiercely while I was walking as quickly and quietly as I could. Sure enough, I spotted him about midway across the open slope and on a dead, brisk walk 
He and I were in a race to reach the same point first. I hooked behind a little bump in the terrain and hustled the last 150 yards to get to some cover along the trail. The crown I was on was nearly all flat talus rock, noisy as hell. By the time I had to stop, I had zero cover at all. In fact, I was painfully skyline. Below me was the string of trees and boulders. The bull's pace was steady and deliberate. He would crest into sight in a matter of moments, so I could go no further. I had only a second to stop and calculate openings along the route I could shoot into. Without a moment to spare, I ranged three gaps. The first at 52 yards, the second, which was directly below me, at 44, and another wide open area from 40 and under. The bull made his way into the slim section of cover, and I removed and knocked my number one arrow. Like countless times before, I clipped my release to my string and focused to control my breathing. I had been scrambling to put myself in this situation and prepare for the imminent shot opportunities lying before me. Everything had happened so fast I barely had time to get nervous. However, now that all was set and I could see the shape of the bull heading steadily down the trail, my heart really began to pound. I was borderline out of breath from the scramble leading up to that point and the sound of my heart pounding escaped into the air as I tried to muffle my breath. My thumping heart and blood rushing inside me seemed so loud I was certain the bull could hear it. I could certainly hear him, the soft clicks of his hoofs and the occasional slurp or carp from his own windpipe. The wind was perfect, a slow but very steady draw pushing up and out of the major canyon that we were on the rim of. Suddenly, the seconds drug like a heavy rusted chain. I was painfully focused. I could hear my watch tick. The bull passed too far below my first shooting lane to compel any consideration of a shot. Not worried, I barely even noticed. I wanted the 44-yard money shot right below me. Just as the bull's shape broke into the opening of the window, he halted, dropped his head, and began to feed. Like he smelled exactly that bunch of grass that he wanted all along, and came up on a rope to that exact spot. He set his feet and began to graze. All I could see was his head and antlers. He fed and fed and fed from the exact same footing for what seemed like an eternity. Exposed, painfully obvious, and grinding with anxiety, I was pinned to the skyline right above him. I watched in veiled tension as his head and antlers rocked back and forth. I could totally see his eye, plain as day, which of course meant that at any moment he could, and rightfully should, notice me, a scarecrow-like figure of mortal danger. I couldn't believe that after such a mad scramble to intercept this bull, the scenario was playing out like this. For the last several hours and from miles away I'd been executing on this plan, which had ramped up into an almost frantic tempo to put me in this kind of dream situation. And now, like some sort of cruel comedy, everything had ground to a halt, literally two feet short. It had been close to ten minutes, and a dead, tingling pain was setting in in my left foot. I'd been still as stone to this point, but needed to shift my weight. That's when I felt the antagonizing and unmistakable sense of the air around me suddenly stop, shift, and begin to tumble down the hill undoubtedly mixing and broiling its way towards the bull, I scrunched in every way imaginable, anticipating the inevitable outcome. The bull's body language said it all. 
His head suddenly jerked upright and nose began bouncing, probing in scoops of tainted air. But given the shifting wind and rolling of air currents, he was not sure exactly which way to go. Rather than retreating, he actually took off at a nervous trot, advancing further down the trail towards me. He blew right through my preferred 44-yard window and far past ideal zone in the final shooting window. With fits of starts and stops, he finally held for a moment in sparse enough trees and branches that I could imagine an arrow reaching him. I'd been at full draw since his initial break and now intently tried to settle my pins on his body. He was about 50 yards out now and quartering away sharply. He'd drawn his own bead on me and now knew exactly where that sudden threat emanated from. We were locked in an intense standoff, connected by the timeless and universal tension of predator versus prey. In direct line of sight, his vitals were clearly exposed. However, a single branch along the top of the small opening I planned to shoot through would certainly snag my arrow as its arc of trajectory peaked halfway to its target. I had to sidestep and squat to arrange a clear path for my arrow. As I did, the bull rotated, but with just enough hesitation that I instinctively released my arrow. The mature bull launched into a full sprint down the sagebrush hill. I had no idea if I'd connected or not, but immediately, as I always do, I ripped my camera from its pouch and began snapping photos. I do this not only for the value of capturing memories, but also as evidence, a way for me to carefully analyze if or where an animal's been hit. In doing so, I could detect no indications of injury to the bull. In fact, from my rim top location, I watched the bull for the next 10 or 15 minutes, making tracks away from the scene of this startling incident and selecting another finger of ridgeline to finally slow down to a stroll and settle his own nerves. As I plucked my arrow from the splintered sagebrush and returned it to my quiver, a mix of analysis and emotions debated in my head. What could have been? What almost was? A big bull on a solitary hunt in this brand new country I was so infatuated with. How the bull spun away and why I missed. Was I negligent to take the shot at all? Do I even remember deciding to shoot? Or was it literally a reaction? A release of all the pent-up frustration of coming to full draw on three magnificent bulls that day, six bulls the previous trip, making nine razor-thin encounters fucked by the shifting wind. How many times could I be so close and have absolutely nothing to show for it but words, expressions, and the sentences of explanation I'm reading now to take the place of dirty fingernails packed with fibers of flesh and the suffering of overloaded pack trips, victory, one haul at a time.